Welcome to the Bully Pulpit from the University of Southern California Center for the Political Future. Our podcast brings together America's top politicians, journalists, academics, and strategists from across the political spectrum for discussions on hot-button issues where we respect each other and respect the truth. We hope you enjoy these conversations. Good day. I'm Bob Shrum, the Warshaw Professor of Politics at the University of Southern California and the Director of the Center for the Political Future. We have an extraordinary guest today to discuss a roadmap to effective national security policy. It was an honor for me personally to work for her in some of her congressional campaigns, and it's a privilege now to introduce Jane Harmon. She's a former Distinguished Fellow and President Emerita at the Wilson Center a nonpartisan forum for global issues, independent research, open dialogue, one of the best think tanks we have in this country. She's a former representative in Congress for California's 36th District. She served nine terms. She was on all the major national security committees, and she's an expert at the nexus of security and public policy issues and has received numerous awards for distinguished service. Her new book, Insanity Defense, Why Our Failure to Confront Hard National Security Problems Makes Us Less Safe is just being released. She's also an honorary trustee here at the University of Southern California. And Jane, I'm hoping that we can do this in kind of two parts. First, I'd like to talk about the book, and then I'd like to spend a little while on what you think of the direction of today's Democratic Party. So let me start with the book, and we're going to go about 40 minutes, and then we're going to take questions from the audience. Can you describe what you mean by the insanity defense? And why do you think U.S. foreign policy has gone off the rails in recent years? Uh, I'll answer that in one second, Bob, if I can give a little more history about you and me. Uh, Both L.A. kids, I know that. Uh, I think neither of us, I think this applies to you, went to school in Los Angeles. Maybe you did. But I did not go to college in L.A. My son did. So I'm a USC mom. I think that is a, a really important credential. I also was married for 30 years to Sidney Harmon, and there is the Harmon Academy for Polymathic Study, I think I got the name right, at USC, which is a totally cool place in Sydney's invention. And I was on, I was a trustee for years and years and years, decided that because I'm, I'm, I'm based so much in Washington, I, I just couldn't, couldn't give it the time I should, which is why I'm now honorary. Like maybe that's a elevation, I'm not sure what it is, but... Uh, <laughs> The USC graduate, Dan Harmon, lives in L.A. with his family, and his younger sister, Justine, lives in L.A. with her family, and that is my long-winded intro to the question you just asked. Justine is a writer and a podcast writer, and I had been thinking about writing this book forever, and um, I finally came up with a title, and I was telling her about my book, and I was hoping she would read it if I ever got it done. And I told her what my title was. And she said, Mother, that is so boring. The right title is Insanity Defense, because what you're talking about is how we keep doing the same thing and expecting a different result. And she just nailed it. So it's good to have smart children. And, you know, at least 50% of the two living in L.A. went to USC. So that makes them super smart. I think that's what you asked me. I might have lost my way. No, I think that was the question. Why do you think U.S. foreign policy has gone off the rails in recent Yes. So that is really what the book is. I was elected to Congress with Bob's help in 1992, uh, which was called the year of the woman, because we doubled the number of women in the House. And 
Uh, two senators uh, who happened to be women, uh, Boxer and Feinstein, were elected from California um, that year. But it was also the first post-Cold War class in Congress. The Cold War ended, uh, it depends how you count, but basically in 1989 or 1990. And um, the my premise in the book is that once we won the Cold War and we thought Russia lost the Cold War. Russia was our biggest opponent in the Cold War. That's basically what it was, two teams. And we were head of one and Russia was head of the other one. We would be the world's superpower. And we did, you know, we could forget about uh, uh, designing a new world because um, the, wor- the whole world wanted to be us. It was over. Uh, and we declared a defense, uh, a, 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 uh, a defense dividend, and we were going to, you know, balance the budget and do all those good things. We ultimately did that, but, but, but the point is that um, we missed what happened next in the decade of the '90s. Uh, China didn't want to be like us. We thought they did, and China started to rise and wanted to be different from us. And we also missed the rise of terrorism. There were some indications we should have caught, like the first bombing of the World uh, Trade Center like the bombing and, and massive destruction of two U.S. embassies in Africa. And yes, that happened, but we, uh, in the Clinton administration, focused elsewhere, and so did Congress. So then came 9-11, and it was a big surprise. And my basic argument in the book is that uh, we haven't had a post-Cold War strategy for three decades. And now we're in decade four, and the good news is I really think that uh, Joe Biden is our first president to think seriously about this. He's deeply experienced. He's also our most experienced uh, foreign policy president since George Bush 41, and probably more experienced than Bush 41. Uh, And um, I'm sure you'll ask me about it, but I I can articulate the beginnings of that foreign policy strategy, which make a lot of sense. Well, I'm, you know, I'm fascinated when you talk about the 90s, because, of course, there was this hubris that sort of set in. Someone even wrote a book called The End of History. That, oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> that history was over. That's Liberal right. democracy had won, and we didn't have to worry anymore. Mm-hmm. What do you think some of the big mistakes in the nineties were? Was expanding NATO to the east a mistake without involving Russia in any way? I, of course, supported it, but looking back on it, it was unwise. And George Kennan, who most people think is the most uh, the wisest diplomat we ever had, he wrote the long telegram was warning about uh, changes uh, in the world you know, back, back in the day. Uh, he also is the name on the door of the Russia program at the Wilson Center. Uh, you mentioned that I headed it for a, uh, a decade, a marvelous a nonpartisan uh, foreign policy-focused think tank. Uh, but Kennan warned at the time, he was still alive, that NATO expansion was a mistake. What, what happened uh, was, at least as far as I was concerned, a close friend of mine who at that point, I think was UN ambassador. I don't think she was yet secretary of state, but I could be wrong. Madeleine Albright uh, pushed for it. And she was a Czech refugee herself. And she made a very compelling argument that welcoming the rest of Europe into NATO would be uh, a huge recognition that uh, the Soviet Union was over and we won the Cold War. And uh, guess what? Um, what Kennan warned about and some others warned about happened. I mean, this sense of grievance by Russia that we were rubbing uh, its nose in defeat festered for decades. And now we have Vladimir Putin 
Uh, and um, uh, just one, one last note on that. When World War II ended, uh, to remind anybody who was alive then, I think I was barely alive, um, very, very young, uh, we, uh, we didn't reward the losers, but we found a way to uh, uh, provide aid for the losers, especially Germany and Japan, and to uh, uh, make sure they would not attack us again because we would, we would basically uh, provide for their defense, especially in the case of, of uh, Japan. And that turned out a little better. Uh, we haven't had a world war since, certainly not with those countries. I want to get to the, what at least for me is the elephant in the room in a minute, and that's Iraq and the Iraq war. But you talked about Clinton. You talked about Biden. How would you rate the Obama administration's handling of national security policy? And why do you think Biden is the person who sees more clearly where we ought to go in terms of strategy? It's a, in part, a question of experience. Bill Clinton, George Bush 43, Obama and Trump had no experience, basically, in foreign policy at all. I mean, just go right through them. Clinton was an enormously smart, hugely gifted uh, governor, former governor of Arkansas, focusing inward. Bush 43 basically gave away the foreign policy file to his vice president, Dick Cheney. And I'm sure we'll talk about that if you're going to ask me about Iraq. Obama was a constitutional law professor, a brilliant orator, who had a, a, an interesting uh, uh, pedigree. And his father was African and he lived in Indonesia growing up. But I don't think anybody would have given him any credit for foreign policy chops. And uh, then uh, Trump, America first, are you kidding? And so then uh, now we have a guy who spent all those decades in the United States Senate uh, and, among other things, chaired the uh, Senate Foreign Relations Committee for years and years and years, traveled all over the world. And he has built a, an A-team of advisors, many of whom worked for him in the past, uh, like Tony Blinken, our Secretary of State, and others. And um, I, I just think they know what they're doing. I mean, I, are they getting everything perfect? How could you do that? I mean, but I think they have a, a long view. Uh, they have an overarching uh, theory of the case, and they are uh, exercising patience and trying to avoid uh, what we've had all these years, which is transactional policy, which is there's a problem in, in, in Israel. Oops, let's surge everything in there and uh, try to solve that problem. And there's a problem, you know, pick another place and let's go there, Taiwan or in wherever. And they're not doing that. And they they have inherited. I they have strategic patience, and and uh, they have enough people selected so far. They still need to do all their ambassadors, but they have enough people selected so far that that someone with deep experience can help advise on something. And that person often could be Joe Biden himself. Yeah, it's it's interesting when you talk about the transactional nature of so much of what we've done over the last several decades, because. The press pushes constantly toward that. So you read all these stories right now, for example, about why isn't Biden doing more to stop the conflict in, in between Israel and, and Hamas? And he's proceeding in a very measured way to try to deal. So what I, I guess what you're saying is he sets strategic priorities. This is what we have to think about first, second, third. And he doesn't try to do more than he thinks the country can accomplish at any given time. 
I think he, the press has uh, the muscle memory of transactional foreign policy, and they constantly push that. It also, I assume, uh, increases their audiences because it's a it's a confrontation. Biden's not doing this on pick pick a place, and right, Biden's not doing this and pick on pick a place. Uh, but I think uh, long term, uh, Biden not doing this, whatever this is, is going to uh, get us to a better place. And I think the, it will take some time, but I think the country. Uh, will be much more supportive of Biden's foreign policy than it has been of the foreign policy of the last four presidents. Yeah. So I'm going to talk about the elephant in the room. You quote your late husband, Sidney, and by the way, I can hear him saying it, <laughs> saying that the intelligence supporting the Iraq war was a load of crap. And you then recount how the director of the CIA at the time of the war, George Tenet, continued to support the premise that Iraq was creating weapons of mass destruction even after it was more and more apparent that the premise was false. You ascribed this to politics. Can you describe how that happened, in your view at least? And has intelligence gathering gotten more and more politicized, and how can we make sure we reverse that? Well, how many hours do you have for the answer to that question? Well, <laughs> well let's start with George Tennant. Obviously, I'm not in his head, and I wasn't in his head. Uh, he was a very well-liked uh, congressional staffer when he was picked. I think, I don't know, maybe to be acting CIA director. I don't think he went directly to being CIA director. I just don't remember what the transition was. But he came to the CIA at a time when it was totally demoralized. It had gone through two or three directors, uh, lots of issues. Sounds like the current CIA. But anyway, we saw the movie uh, earlier. And George Tennant came, and he's a, a lovely, appealing guy. And he, you know, wore his gym clothes around the place and he would pick up lunch in the cafeteria and everybody loved him. And so he was a very popular guy. And in fact, when uh, Bush 43 became president, he kept him. So he was a Democratic holdover as CIA director. And I think that has uh, some relevance to this. What happened? Uh, well, I can't explain everything that happened. I was certainly fooled. Uh, duh. But I think a variety of things happened. I, I think he he lost control. The CIA lost control of building the case. I think it sort of migrated over to the White House. It's certainly been publicly reported that Dick Cheney would come over to the CIA, Dick Cheney then the vice president, uh, and look at raw intelligence. That is not typical. I never saw raw intelligence as the senior, uh, as the ranking member, the most senior Democrat on the House Intel Committee. Um, and I don't think any vice president since Cheney has seen raw intelligence could be wrong. I, I actually can't. I have no idea what the Trump administration did. But the point is, Cheney and others who had a view that toppling uh, Saddam Hussein, which was their view, uh, would set in motion a kind of a domino theory and democracy would break out in the Middle East. This was the so-called neoconservative view. Wanted to make sure that we made the case to invade the Iraq and take out Saddam Hussein. I know much more about this now than I did then, although I certainly knew the neocons. And uh, um, they tried to persuade me of this view. I was never persuaded. But they decided, or so I am told, and that's what the public record says, and it's in my book, that they could sell this better 
if they also made the case that Saddam Hussein had weapons of mass destruction that could reach the U.S. And that's the case they sold me on. So I think looking back, what happened was Tenet lost some lost a lot of control over writing the national intelligence estimate. It was basically written by the White House. It was probably released by the CIA, but written by the White House. It cherry-picked intel. It focused on sources that hadn't been vetted. There was a source called Curveball, marvelous code name, <laughs> German. And the Germans said uh, they had no confidence in him. Of course, we learned this later. And, oh, by the way, uh, we, we never vetted him. And I don't know if we even interviewed him. So, oh, my God, what a catastrophe is that? And um, there were other things like, oh, the State Department uh, Intel Office called INR um, uh, disagreed with the intelligence case. Um, but their disagreement was never featured anywhere. And I wasn't aware of it. And so what happened was uh, a, a cherry-picking uh, ideological effort to uh, put together a national intelligence estimate based on intel that that backed up the the estimate and not based on any other intel was put together and that's the one that fooled me and fooled most members of Congress. There was a there was majority support for the authorization to use military force in Iraq, and I have said ever since it was wrong. Uh, the, the intelligence case was wrong, and I was wrong. And, uh, you know, I wasn't manipulated in the sense, well, yes, I was. I mean, the Cheney effort, I think you could say, you know, I would say it to his face, uh, was a manipulation of data. Uh, but I think most of the analysts who put that case together uh, thought they were doing the right thing. And uh, I was in, I traveled around the world. That's one of the things I said to Sidney Harmon when he said it's a lot of crap. I said, you, you don't know anything about this. I've done all my homework. I've been all, to all the places talking to foreign intel services. And they agreed, and they did. So, uh, you know, we learned a lot. And what came after that was a uh, total reorganization of the intelligence community. And you asked me, uh, you know, how, <laughs> is it any better? Uh, answer, much better. Uh, the organization is better. Good people, uh, the ones who haven't been fired or uh, left because they were so, so disappointed by the last uh, uh, presidency. Uh, are doing a good job, and and it's a uh, intelligence, as I say over and over again, is not a science. It's a set of predictions of what the uh, in, what the intent and capability are of others, so that when policymakers who are not the intelligence assets uh, make policy, they can say, "Gee, maybe we should uh, try to return to the uh, Iran deal, or try to make a better deal." What do the parties uh, who were part of it in 2015 think? Then there is someone in the room, hopefully, to speak truth to power. In other words, not to cherry pick, not to shade, not to make up, but who says our best assessment is uh, the Russians are thinking this, the Iranians are thinking that, the Chinese are thinking somebody something else, et cetera, et cetera. And that leads to better policy. I've said, you know, bad intelligence uh, often supports bad policy, I think, Iraq war. A good intelligence doesn't always lead to good policy, but there's a much better shot the policy will be good if the intelligence is good. Could an administration seize on a fixed idea, again, do what you described Cheney is doing, 
and basically subvert the intelligence agencies. How do we prevent that from happening? I think that would be a lot harder, uh, given our experience. I also think that the intelligence community reorganization matters. Uh, there were stovepipes, um, 16 agencies, not including the, the, the military uh, intel agencies, the uh, tactical military intel agencies, uh, each of which uh, basically operated individually and didn't share information. This is the so-called failure to connect the dots. Uh, we also had the FBI, which has a mandate to focus on uh, internally on the United States, not really talking to the CIA. And we missed additional clues uh, about 9-11 that way because the hijackers, many of them came in uh, from, from uh, Asia and were in San Diego at a meeting. And we had some information about the meeting, but we didn't communicate, the FBI didn't communicate that to the CIA which might have put the clues together. So um, now we have, after 2004, because of the intelligence uh, reform law that I helped draft and pass, uh, a joint command across these 16 agencies, which makes it much harder for anybody to go rogue and requires for these uh, intelligence estimates called NIEs, National Intelligence Estimates, that the sources be vetted, surprise, that uh, there be Red teams, meaning teams brought in to uh, question everything that's in the document, uh, that there be outside reviewers, people with very long uh, intel credentials who basically write book reviews and say, I think this estimate's good, I think it's bad, whatever, before it's published. And those reviews are in the intel estimate. And I don't see how you could really do what... what uh, uh, Dick Cheney and a few folks did for the Iraq uh, NIE again. Yeah, well, that's comforting. Uh, I have a couple more things about the book and about our national security policy, and then I want to talk to you more generally about the Democratic Party. Do you think the U.S. over-relies on military force in dealing with the rest of the world? Yes, and I think we did that after 9-11. We failed to heed the advice, which he always gives, from General Dave Petraeus, retired General Dave Petraeus, who, among other things, taught at USC for a, a while. His advice is, you always have to ask the question, how will this end? And I have now, I think, imprinted that on my brain for many things that I get myself involved in. And I think what happened was we responsibly acted after 9-11 to pass an authorization to use military force in uh, Afghanistan. This is not the Iraq AUMF. This is the, the Afghanistan AUMF, uh, which passed Congress virtually unanimously. Only one member, Barbara Lee of Berkeley, California, who still serves, voted against it. But we all supported it because we thought we should go after, using military force, the people who attacked us, most of whom were in Afghanistan. And over time, we did degrade, and in, you know, in the case of uh, taking out Osama bin Laden, decapitate the leadership of al-Qaeda all of which I thought was a good idea. Then what happened? We stayed. We didn't ask how will this end. Mission Creek set in. And uh, we thought we could clear, hold, and build various cities in Afghanistan. And we surged troops and we spent uh, billions. I think we spent trillions, but uh, multi, multi-billions. Uh, Americans died for this. Uh, so did many others. We built an international force there. And uh, that was more typical than not of the kind of U.S. 
foreign policy after 9-11. A big mistake. What we should have done, and surely was I critical enough? No. Uh, but what we should have done is uh, what George Bush 41 did after he got Saddam Hussein out of Kuwait, say mission accomplished, not with a big banner on the ship the way Bush 43 did it, uh, mission accomplished and limited the mission. And that's what we should have done. And helped rebuild Afghanistan through the use of diplomacy and international organizations and foreign aid and uh, things we're really good at. And our, our image there, uh, our, our exposure there, this horrible alternative we have now, which is either stay and do the insane defense option or get out, would probably have been avoided. I wasn't going to ask you this, but now that you brought it up, I'm going to. Do you think Biden is right to have made the decision to get out of Afghanistan? Yes. And I think Trump was right before him, but Trump had no strategy. Uh, Trump, you know, Trump's foreign policy was more by press release and, and, and announcement from, from his office than it was by carefully supported, considered process of uh, foreign policy making. So what Biden did was he, he was confronted with the Trump deadline negotiated by a, a very experienced diplomat, Zal Khalilzad, who still works for Biden, but Paul kept him. He was confronted by the fact that we were getting out on May 1st without a plan. What he did was, and you know, you could argue that this was too short a time or whatever, he converted that into, we're getting out on 9-11, I mean, it will be the 20th anniversary, and it is the longest war in U.S. history, and there is a plan of how to remove our troops safely and, and what we do next. Is it a good option? No, I don't think it's a good option. I think it's the least bad option, and I think if we don't get out now, we'll never get out, and am I worried about the women and girls being overrun by the Taliban. You bet I am. But I have actually talked to, I think it was four women who were on members of, equal members of the Taliban uh, delegation that was negotiating even under Trump. And they are confident that women have made such strides that they will not be pushed back to the Stone Age by some, uh, you know, rough tribal leaders. So what do we do if Afghanistan again becomes a center or a source of terrorism and a threat, and if we're seeing massive oppression of the Afghan people? Well, human rights is a plank. It was, 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 first was a plank of foreign policy in the Carter administration. I know that because I was in the White House when he did that. Uh, and uh, Warren Christopher of California was uh, our Secretary of State. Um, but uh, we have to, we as a group of nations, maybe through the UN, maybe through other uh, organizations that we have, have to intervene if human, you know, in the, in the case, I think, in the case of ethnic cleansing and genocide and so forth. And we're trying to do that in various parts of the world. It's not always very effective, uh, but it, it is something we need to do if, if that happens. Uh, if the women and girls are overrun by the Taliban, I think that's another case where uh, inter intervention is necessary. Uh, and in terms of uh, Afghanistan becoming a training ground again for a terrorist attack against us, I, I don't think that is going to happen. I think our intelligence is a lot better. And I do think we're, not, we're, we're moving our troops out. We're not moving our ability to collect intelligence on what's going on on the ground uh, in Afghanistan out. And we have be much better technical means, let's just leave it at that, to know what, what up than we did 20 years ago. 
Well, at the end of all this insanity, we obviously have a lot of problems. But there's one thing in the book I have to ask you about because it's absolutely fascinating to me. You describe how you were wiretapped, you, by the National Security Agency. Why and how was that even possible? Well, I'm not positive I was wiretapped. The, uh, the press uh, accounts said I was wiretapped. Uh, this was a uh, horrible uh, chapter for me, obviously. It was the lead story front page of the New York Times above the fold, uh, just what you, you never want to read. And it basically made a claim, which was never proved, that I, and, and is false, oh, by the way, uh, that I intervened uh, in a, in, in order to become chair of the House Intelligence Committee in 19, in 2006, which I did want to do. It did not happen, but I very much wanted to be chair of the House Intelligence uh, Committee and thought I was well qualified for that and was the senior Democrat on the committee. Uh, but that, that apparently I was talking to APAC, which most people know is the pro-Israel lobby, uh, and uh, asked for their support, and they said, allegedly, well, okay, but several of our uh, employees have been indicted under the Espionage Act. We would like you to intervene with the Justice Department to try to change their fate. Uh, I don't know, it didn't say specific what I would do, but I would intervene in the case against the APAC employees, and, and the, the quid pro quo is they would then help me become chairman of the committee. Well, they already were helping me. And I would never have done such a thing. And I didn't do such a thing. And the Justice Department, I forget which part of the Justice Department, and the House Ethics Committee both wrote me letters that said I was never the, the subject or target of an investigation. So whether I was actually wiretapped or not, I don't know. But certainly somebody somewhere uh, had in mind that I ought to be smeared. And um, it didn't work. I was elected re-elected five times, including primaries, after that, so that my constituents didn't buy it. And uh, it's never gotten any worse since. I think I'd like to turn to the Democratic Party and where we are and spend like 10 minutes on that before we turn to audience questions. Uh, so I'm going to switch gears. You were certainly in the mainstream of the Democratic Party during the Clinton years. Do you think the Democrats now are on the right track, or have they moved too far left? Well, times are different. I would never have been elected if I hadn't been a centrist Democrat. Uh, as I often say, I'm a Scoop Jackson Democrat for the five people who remember him. He was a, a very effective senator from Washington State, sometimes called Mr. Boeing. But the point of it was he was for a strong national defense and a strong economy, uh, capitalist economy. But he was also progressive on social issues. Uh, those are my politics. And they always were. And uh, when I ran for Congress the first time, you remember this, Bob, we thought that the district would probably be a safe Democratic district. That's, that was the design of it uh, when Mel Levine left it. Um, he left to run for uh, senator from California and lost to Barbara Boxer. But at any rate, it was an open seat, which is an easier seat to win. It's much easier to, to win that way than knock off an incumbent. So we thought it'd be a safe Democratic seat. Then it was... In 1992, which is the, the census year, we do a census every every 10 years in the in the odd years, and then the next uh, time, the two the two two term two years later, the district lines are redrawn to reflect the the population numbers, and 
So this time, get ready. You know, California, the California census shows, I mean, this, the U.S. census shows that California's losing population, so it's going to lose a congressional seat. So it'll be interesting to see how that plays. Bob, you probably know the answer to that, but I don't. But at any rate, uh, lines redrawn in 1992, and oops, my safe Democratic seat becomes a lean Republican seat. This turned out to be great for me. Why? Because, yes, I had Bob Shrum working for me. Uh, but in addition to that, I was a centrist Democrat um, and uh, easily won in the Democratic field five, five Democrats. The Republican field had seven Republicans, one of whom was Maureen Reagan, uh, the daughter of Ronald Reagan. And he was actively supporting her. He was the former president and his, you know, sadly, his Alzheimer's had not pr progressed enough so that he, he couldn't be effective. He was effective. She was a pro-choice Republican. And if she had won the primary, uh, I would have lost. I'm convinced I would have lost. Wouldn't I have lost, Bob? I think you would have, yes. Yeah, I would have lost. Uh, narrowly, but I would have lost. Uh, but she lost to an anti-choice Republican. and that opportunity set up the moderate Republicans asking me, get this, can we become Republicans for Harmon? And they stayed a base of mine all my years. And then I also had enormous support from the aerospace community. And most of those executives were Republicans too. So, you know, that was sort of my magic formula. And you asked if the Democratic Party has now changed. Well, there are people like me serving in the Democratic Party. Uh, somebody who comes to mind was a college classmate of my daughter, Justine's, and his name is Connor Lamb, and he represents a district in western Pennsylvania, and it's a pretty similar story. Um, so um, that was then. But there also were, and now are more, uh, uh, much more uh, uh, liberal Democrats. Uh, I think the difference between then and now is uh, the rise of social media and the way the boombox of politics. Uh, creates a, an enormous opportunity for people who are in the in the in the far left and the far right to announce their views and build gigantic uh, war chests through raising money on the internet that was never available, and so it, it's shifted the balance. And are there more of them? Uh, maybe I think yeah, I would say maybe uh, in part because of what I just said, but also. People in the center are in the hardest seats to hold, and a lot of them are leaving. The five retirements in the Senate already announced for 2022 are all Republican males. Uh, no Democrats yet that I can think of, but they're all centrists. And I think it's really sad uh, to see the center uh, hollow out and to see the rise of, of, of both more extreme wings in our parties. Yeah, I want to ask one other question about that, but first, How's Biden doing at balancing and dealing with the different factions of the Democratic Party? He's trying hard. How far is he getting? Eh, not so far yet. I think he's basically a centrist Democrat. I mean, that certainly was his reputation all the years. And his views have evolved on a number of things. So he's more progressive on social issues than he used to be. But he, you know, he's a practicing Catholic, which is fine. And I, I think he's I, I'm very comfortable with his politics. How's he doing? Well, the left, as we have just discussed, is enormously vocal. And the number of people who ran in the primary against him are still enormously vocal, like Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren. And 
I think he is trying as his best to straddle uh, some of their views uh, with the views and needs of the center. Because if he ditches the center for the left, number one, he's leaving his his own comfort zone. Uh, but number two, uh, we'll never, you know, we'll lose the majority because you have to have uh, uh, a, a, a big tent for a party to be in the majority. So, and he knows that. Uh, he's picked a bunch, uh, I think a pretty good cabinet. I really do. Um, some people don't have a lot of experience. That's scary. Um, but he's also satisfied another demand, which I'm sympathetic to, which is to have a diverse cabinet. And um, uh, he's, he's done well with that. He talked in his inaugural address about bringing the country together. He's talked about trying to be bipartisan. But you look at what's happening in Congress, and the GOP seems to have gotten, at least in the House, thoroughly Trumpified. What does that say about the possibility of bipartisan cooperation between Republicans in Congress and President Biden? It's hard. It's not just the Trumpified problem. Trumpification, it's a good word. (laughs) Uh, Whatever. But it's also, and I've said this for years, and I think I put it in the book, that the business model of Congress is broken. Uh, The business model is blame the other side for not solving the problem. Because if you work with the other side, as we always used to do, certainly when I was a staffer in the Senate, and certainly Ted Kennedy is a great example of this who we worked for. If you work with the other side, you are bipartisan. Oh my God, it's the dirtiest word in the, in the political language of, of the United States. And if you're bipartisan, then you are a target in your primary uh, from the left or the right. And Many elections, most of them are decided in primaries, not in the general election, because most congressional districts are safe for either party. And that means that it's that that you, that you solve problems at your peril. And, and fewer and fewer people put the country first and take risks, which is why I thought uh, this Cheney's recent action was heroic. I mean, she 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 put her well, obviously she she lost her leadership post, and she may have put her political. Uh, future at risk. And she's not even in my party. And I'm applauding her for, for her act of courage. Yeah, I've actually said to people that if I lived in Wyoming, I would, for the first time in my life, register as a Republican so I could vote for her in the primary, because there's going to be a Republican congressperson from there anyway. So we have a whole set of questions from people who are watching. So I'm going to work my way through them. And one goes to something. The first one goes to something we were talking about earlier. One of the most pressing foreign policy concerns right now is what's happening between Israel and Hamas and Gaza. Do you think a more comprehensive strategy could either resolve or could have prevented that conflict? I actually think this sad, horrible uh, set of events, uh, which is using human beings as pawns uh, on both sides, was is the result of insanity defense. I mean, we have thought for years, including me, that the region would be peaceful, there would be a two-state solution. The United States trained a, a, a capable enough force in the West Bank uh, over years. We spent a lot of money doing that, and they kept the West Bank calm. Uh, Israel has had a series of governments, uh, some I like better than others, but a lot of them well-intended. And interestingly, Israel missed two chances to have warriors become peacemakers. One was when uh, Yitzhak Rabin was assassinated uh, tragically in 1994. And the other one was when Ariel Sharon, Eric Sharon, the warrior who 
got a lot of bad marks for stuff he did that many felt excessive uh, as a uh, leader of, in the Israeli military. But he's the guy who, as the leader of the then opposition party, uh, pulled Israelis out, Israeli settlements out of Gaza, and was hoping that there would be a, a reunification of Gaza and the West Bank. And uh, he never said uh, what would come next, but the move was intended to promote peace. Uh, well, oops, he got uh, terminally ill, was in a coma for seven years, and it promoted war. And so uh, I think Israel lost two big chances. And Bibi Netanyahu, got to say this about the guy, is the best survivor in modern politics. He, he leaves <laughs> Trump in the dust, in the dust, because he's still in power. And where he was right before this event, of these events of, I guess, 10 days ago uh, or so, was uh, he was on trial for corruption and he was not the guy asked by the president of Israel, Rivlin, to form a new government. Israel's been through four elections in the last year or so, and Bibi was unable, he's had a plurality in each of them, but he was unable to form a government in any of them. You know, you have to put together minority parties. They have a parliamentary system with 10,000 minority parties. And I'm kidding around. But he couldn't do it. And so Rivlin asked someone else to put together the coalition, which was starting up, and there was a possibility it could happen, and then this happened. And so now the effort to form a alternative coalition has blown up. Bibi's still in power, uh, and he's got an argument that he's protecting the country. And I'm predicting, I don't know this, that Israel may go to a fifth election, and he will have more leverage to form another government. And uh, part of this is, uh, if he is the head of the country, he is still trying to roll back uh, whatever are the laws that could possibly imprison uh, an acting prime minister or maybe an ex-prime minister. and. Uh, so it's a survival mission. Plus, the other piece is uh, Hamas is a, is a bad actor, and it's a terror group, uh, which has basically taken over the West Bank. Uh, there is a huge uh, number of tunnels under uh, Gaza, which are used to smuggle in uh, rockets, which I think are supplied by Iran, and other material to attack Israel. And so getting rid of the tunnels is a, is a good thing to do, and degrading Hamas is a good thing to do. But the bad part of it is that it's been done in a way that that uh, uh, sac sadly sacrifices uh, innocent civilians and 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 basically feeds the first objective that uh, the prime minister has, which is to survive in office. Well, I certainly agree with you that he's a great survivor. I was a strategist for Ehud Barak uh, in 1999 in the only election Netanyahu has ever lost. And. Barack won in a landslide, and we all assumed that was the last we had seen of Netanyahu. And here we are 22 years later, and he's prime minister. What can, is there anything else the U.S. can do here? We talked about this earlier, and you said we can't just chase the bright, shining object. Is there anything else we can do? Well, uh, yes. We've restored aid to the Palestinians, which Trump cut off. Really, that, that move of Trump's... Uh, Fed, you know, anxiety and and uh, uh, the 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 need for revenge by the uh, you know the Palestinian people were just fed up with uh, with uh, the situation in which they live. Gaza is highly congested, and they're basically in a in a 
in a, in a jail. They can't get out of Gaza to go to Israel. They can't get passports to travel anywhere else. And they live in these high density, uh, I guess, COVID receptive areas and a uh, nightmare for them. So what alternative do they really have other than acting out? But the other, the other piece of that uh, is that uh, Mahmoud Abbas, who leads the Palestinian Authority in the West Bank, uh, who doesn't speak for Hamas, uh, was supposed to hold uh, a new election where some strong candidates were running, strong candidates meaning capable, not corrupt, uh, maybe capable of integrating, reintegrating uh, Gaza and the West Bank. And Abbas postponed the election, claiming, uh, I don't know, that these that the Palestinians couldn't vote in East Jerusalem and this was a problem. But the polls, so I hear, showed him, age 85, not likely to keep his coalition in the majority. So, you know, there's another problem. But anyway, what can we do? We can help the Palestinians get to, with aid, and, and maybe help them, as we have done in the past, provide for more competent management of their people. They are not a state. We can continue to build on something that I think is very interesting that Trump started, these Abraham Accords, which is a public, it used to be informal, but a public uh, relationship between the Sunni Arab states and Israel. Uh, and we can uh, encourage Egypt, which we are doing, uh, which made peace with Israel years ago, uh, leading to the uh, assassination of Anwar Sadat uh, for his bravery. We encourage Egypt to be an honest broker and try to uh, impose a ceasefire. And uh, something we're not doing and should do is also get Jordan into the act. Jordan is a country that also made peace with Israel and that has a huge Palestinian population and I think would play a much bigger role than it's being asked to do. So I think we're, we're doing okay. Uh, but what we shouldn't do is assume that we're in charge and we're directing countries to do something that we want them to do, the people on the ground have to want to do, have to want to make peace and have to have to want a two-state solution more than we do. Yeah, the questions we have here, by the way, reflect a, a kind of tour of the world, around the world in six, seven questions. But I'm going to combine the next two, which is what do we do about Taiwan and about the Chinese who continue their aggressive postures toward Taiwan and the South China Sea? And is there an asymmetry here? where the U.S. military seems best prepared for conventional warfare, whereas the Chinese military seems prepared to neutralize our assets with missiles, cyber attacks, and expanding their base of regional allies. Does the military lack innovation and leadership? And how do we deal with China and with Taiwan? Okay, how many hours do you have for this one? Well, <laughs> well you know, I said we missed China's rise. Maybe you, could, maybe you could come out and become a fellow and teach a course and answer well, all these I things. Well, maybe I can. I mean, I have four perfect grandchildren who live in L.A., and my kids are okay, too, including the U.S. grad. So we missed China's rise. We don't fully understand China. We're afraid we've somehow missed the boat with China. I don't think so. Uh, and you just mentioned the word allies. I don't think China has a lot of allies. I think China has a lot of people who fear China. I think we have a lot of allies and who we have people who, who respect uh, our values when we live them and who, uh, it seems to me, uh, would much rather be on our side if we would re-engage with them. So uh, I see that a little different. Taiwan is a, you know, another problem from hell. Uh, it is, we, we have had uh, one country, two systems strategy for a long time. Uh, recognizing that China 
is the is the operative state, but that within China there was Taiwan and Hong Kong. Oops, Hong Kong. Uh, we kind of sat by the Trump administration did when China flexed its muscles on Hong Kong. Very very disappointing uh, performance, and uh, I think the Biden administration doesn't want to do that again. I think China uh, has to be wary of what we might do uh, with Taiwan, which and. Uh, so I, I think it won't overrun Taiwan the way it did Hong Kong. That would be my own prediction. China is also a human rights violator. Now, the Uyghurs are in concentration camps, and that is known all over the world. And I thought it was very interesting that uh, Speaker Pelosi yesterday, I think, said that leaders of countries should boycott the Chinese Olympics, that the athletes could go. And you can go into that, but if you cancel the Olympics and Olympic athletes have trained for years and years uh, and they miss the chance to perform, that's a real tragedy for them. I'm not sure why we couldn't move the whole venue, but I think her calculation is we're basically downgrading it as an international event where China will get uh, world recognition in the way that China wants world recognition. Anyway, I, you know, so it's complicated. What should we be doing? We should not be just matching our military with theirs. Uh, I think you made that point, Bob. Uh, the threats against us are different, and a lot of them are cyber and AI. And you know, assuming that countries will use nuclear weapons on each other, I think is it is less accurate than it might have been certainly in the Cold War days. I don't think that will happen. But will there be more cyber and ransomware attacks and all this? Yeah, there will. So I think what we should be doing is equipping ourselves against. Chinese technology, and uh, I also think we should uh, be doing things like on, on uh, 5G, where the Trump announcement was, we're not going to have anything to do with China's 5G network. Well, we didn't have an alternative. Let's have an alternative. There's a software-based system called ORAN, uh, which we could build uh, uh, with, with largely U.S. And, and allied firms that would compete very effectively with China's 5G. Let's do something like that. Let's work with China on climate, which we are trying to do. Um, and ch uh, climate doesn't respect national boundaries, uh, if anyone missed that. And China's the world's biggest polluter. And let's try to do that. And so let's compete and cooperate. And I think thought about in those terms, we'll avoid the landmines like uh, Taiwan. Is China trying to provoke us? Yeah, but let's not take the bait. Uh, okay, I'm going to try and squeeze two more questions in here. These other questions have been anonymous. This is from Dave Gutman. Do you think it's possible that there will be 10 Republican votes in the Senate for an inquiry into what happened January 6th? And more broadly, by the way, given the conspiracy theories about the election, do you fear for the future of democracy in this country? Well, let me start with the second one. I think democracy is under threat in this country, given this so-called big lie. I do. And I think most Republicans don't believe it, but they're scared of, of uh, former President Trump and the Trump base. And so they're quiet. So will that lead to uh, 10 votes in the Senate for a uh, January 6th commission? I don't know. I just saw what happened in the House, which you know was perplexing. Kevin, Kevin McCarthy encouraged, or at least gave permission, to the ranking member, his buddy, on the House Homeland Security Committee to co-author a 1-6 commission bill with Benny Thompson, who's the Democratic chair of that committee. Those two work pretty closely together. Uh, and they did. 
and they worked out differences. They put the bill out. Uh, and um, then after that happened, McCarthy, who had encouraged it, said, oops, nope, uh, I oppose it. And uh, basically threw the author under the bus. Uh, and another problem was, is that the Problem Solvers Caucus, a, uh, an interesting hybrid uh, of uh, Democrats and Republicans, bottom-up caucus trying to solve problems, had endorsed the idea. Uh, there was a vote today, and I may have misread uh, the report. Was the vote totally partisan today uh, in the House? I don't know. I don't know either. I thought I saw that, which meant that the bill's own author, co-author, and all the Republican pro problem solvers ducked, uh, which I think is heartbreaking. Uh, so now what happens in the Senate? I think Mitch McConnell has just announced that he opposes it too. So I think it is now another partisan and piece of partisan debris on the floor. And instead of what we did after 9-11, which was to form a truly bipartisan commission co-chaired by Lee Hamilton, my mentor and friend who uh, preceded me as, as uh, president of the Wilson Center, uh, and Tom Keene, uh, a former Republican governor of New Jersey, instead of that, which had broad respect and came up with excellent recommendations so we could learn uh, from 9-11, uh, we have nothing. And we have actually members of Congress reading some scripts saying nothing happened, but it was just a regular tourist event at the Capitol. Uh, I can't believe one human being believes that. No, I, I, I think very, maybe Marjorie Taylor Greene believes it, but I, I, don't, I don't think most other people do. I fear for the future of the democracy because if you get all these voter suppression bills in all these states, and if, for example, the Arizona legislature asserts its right to substitute its electors for the ones the people of Arizona choose, then 2024, you could actually get a president who was soundly defeated, which I think at some level was what we were trying, what, what was being attempted in, in, in on January 6th. I don't disagree with that. I somehow think that won't happen. Why do I think that? Because that will be the end of our democracy. And I don't think people want to go that far. I, I don't. I mean, I have my own experience with this, Bob. You remember in 94, the year Newt Gingrich came to power, uh, I was running for re-election, my first re-election, which is always the hardest in my lean Republican seat. And there was... Um, uh, most of the of the women elected to open seats like me lost re-election in their first re-election. Uh, and on election night, I was down 250 votes out of about 200,000 votes cast. Uh, and, you know, we didn't count votes in the, in, the, uh, in the more sophisticated way we do now. I guess we had tellers and they posted things and you had to keep calling in to see what your numbers were. At 5 o'clock, they closed the polls at 5 o'clock a.m. Uh, there were 10,000 uncounted absentee votes. And my campaign was one of the first that pitched uh, to Democrats that they should vote absentee. Uh, only Republicans had done that before. You know, note to Republicans, you're the folks who used to think absentee vo uh, voting was so good. But anyway, 10,000 uncounted absentee votes. I was urged not to concede. I didn't concede. Uh, a lawyer... Uh, uh, my, my campaign hired a lawyer named David Boyce, who many have heard of, who flew out pro bono, he's a former Californian, to supervise the count on my behalf. My opponent had a lawyer. And when all the votes were counted, uh, I won by 811 votes. And uh, I was 
that was challenged, but I was certified the winner and seated in the house. And, you know, that's the way it should work. And, and uh, would that happen again now? I think it would be even messier, much messier. Yeah, well, I certainly remember that well. I remember the 94 long count well. Uh, although I always did think that you were going to prevail in that precisely because the campaign had gone out and solicited Democrats to send in absentee ballots, which was unusual in California. I mean, on election night in 1960, JFK carried California, but Democrats didn't solicit absentee ballots. And so when they counted those a week later, he'd lost the state by 30,000 votes. Can I just say one more thing? I know we're over time. You could say, sure, go ahead. Sorry. So on ele- election day in, uh, in 1994, uh, my daughter called, uh, my older daughter named Hillary. She does not live in California now. Uh, but she was at Princeton as a student. She said, Mom, I forgot to vote. I had my absentee ballot. I said, what do you mean you forgot to vote? You're my daughter. You have to vote. And <laughs> figured out, I'm, I'm very yeah, accommodating of my children when they do something like that. So she, she, she borrowed a car. She drove to Newark Airport. We had somebody in the campaign who knew a way to put a ballot on an airplane. Uh, her ballot flew to... Los Angeles, there was a rule then that only, and I hope this is restored, I don't think, you know, I'm not a big uh, uh, fan of what's called ballot harvesting, where anybody can pick up ballots and deliver them to the polls. In this case, had to be immediate next of kin could deliver ballots. So her older brother, Brian, who you know, was out there with me, (laughs) and he picked up her ballot, and it had to be delivered in person by 8 p.m. So her ballot was delivered in person to the correct poll by 7.45 7.45 p.m. Why this is relevant is that uh, when the counting of the ballots were super, was supervised, she was one of the 10,000 ballots. And signatures were verified, and everybody was really careful. And if Hillary hadn't voted, uh, I would have uh, hopefully won by 810 votes. But the point is, uh, that's not a big margin, and every vote counts. And every child of mine has voted in every single election, so far as I know, or they wouldn't dare tell me if they hadn't. Well, listen, I want to thank you. I want to thank our audience. I want to thank the staff who worked on all of this. This was terrifically informative. And we want to see a lot more of you at the Center for the Political Future. So you and I should have a conversation about this sometime in the next several weeks. But thank you very, very, very much. I hope you enjoyed it. We certainly did. Well, thank you very much, Bob. And I assume you're the Warshaw uh, professor. Is that Carmen Warshaw? Carmen and Lewis Warshaw professor, yes. Uh, They were great citizens of uh, Los Angeles and the United States. And another great graduate of USC and a dear friend of mine is Roz Wyman, who's only 90. And she told me that one of the pillars in the L.A. Coliseum is going to have a plaque dedicated to her. And she was the youngest uh, city council person uh, in Los Angeles back in the day, elected at 21, uh, a USC grad. And she was my first mentor, uh, who happens to be a woman in politics. And I just want to salute Roz in case she's watching this. Great. And I salute her as well. Thanks very much. Bye-bye. Take care. Thank you for joining us on The Bully Pulpit. It helps us a lot when you subscribe and rate the show five stars wherever you get your podcast. Follow us on Twitter at USC P-O-L Future, that's USC P-O-L Future. Follow us on Facebook and YouTube and visit our website for upcoming programs. 